Divergence, the podcast miniseries. Welcome back to the Divergence podcast. I'm your host, R.L. Solberg. In this miniseries that we're working on, we are taking a historical journey examining the Jewish-Christian relations in the first three centuries of the Christian faith. And yes, this is the subject of my book, Divergence. Uh, this miniseries is a bit of a companion to that book, but as I've said, you don't, need to, you don't need to own that book in order to get something out of this series. So you can find out more about the book at divergencebook.com or about other fun things at rlsolberg.com. So we are in episode number two of this series. Now in the last episode, we set the table for the discussion. So we looked at a little background about why we're exploring this era, uh, and we established the historical context, which was kind of the primary focus of that first episode, talking about things like persecution and public discourse and uh, religious convictions of the era in which the Christian church emerged. And we also talked about, and this is probably going to be the most um, the most germane to the rest of our discussion in this series, we talked about racial relations in antiquity. What was that like? Uh, so if you haven't heard the first episode, I'd encourage you to take a listen to that. The other thing that we did, uh, we sort of established the framework for our study. What are we going to be going through over the next, I guess there's 10 episodes left. So here's what we're doing. It's kind of a three-part thing. First, we're establishing a New Testament baseline on how Christians should regard Jews and Judaism. What should our posture and our attitude be towards them? And then secondly, we're going to compare that New Testament baseline to the writings of the early church fathers. We'll go through the first three centuries. And then third, we're going to compare that baseline to sort of the state of Christianity at the end of the Council of Nicaea. And we'll compare how Christianity felt, what the attitudes and theology was at the end of Nicaea to the baseline that we were given in the New Testament and see what's changed over time. So we are just at the very beginning of this journey. And today we're going to begin our dive into the New Testament writings, kind of beginning to establish our baseline. So this New Testament examination is actually going to span probably three episodes before we get through it all. Today we're going to be looking specifically at the writings of the Apostle Paul, and especially his teachings about Jews and Judaism from the book of Romans, concentrating on, on chapters 9 through 11, which, which many people feel is the closest thing to a systematic theology that we find in Scripture. Now, of course, a, if we wanted to do a complete, exhaustive academic research on the New Testament writings that talk about this, or even going into the Old Testament and all that, it's going to be well beyond the scope of what we could you know, get into bite-sized chunks in, the, in this podcast series. But the good news is that we can build an accurate picture of what the New Testament has to say just by focusing on the passages that contain the most direct and the most explicit teachings regarding Judaism and Jews and the Christian, uh, the Christian posture towards them. Now, many of you probably already know this, but just to give you some historical background here, the, the writings of the New Testament, they're dated between roughly the year 50 early 50s and and up to maybe the year 100, depending on how you date some of John's writings. But the earliest books are believed to have been written within less than 30 years of the crucifixion. These are some of the books that that would have been written before the year AD 60. So these would include Romans, um, 
First and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians. So a lot of these writings, Paul's writings, we can date into the 50s at least. So this puts them well within the lifetimes of those who knew and followed Jesus and those who witnessed the events recorded by the New Testament writers, right? So even, so conservative scholars, we'll just go with them. They, they believe that the overwhelming majority of the New Testament writings were completed before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. That's kind of the big benchmark as far as historical uh, events in that era. So in other words, these, these are writings that arose early in Christianity and they were circulated widely. And more than that, I mean, with the exception of Luke, the New Testament writers were all Jewish. And if you actually, if you look this up uh, in the uh, the Universal Jewish Encyclopedia, I have a quote to read for you here, talking about the New Testament, it says this, quote, most of the writers of the various parts were Jews, and the writings were designed for Jewish readers who had embraced the Christian faith. The authors drew more or less from contemporary Jewish ideas, ethics, legends, parables, and sayings. Now, as we established in the first episode, you know, the modern concepts of racism and racial theory were foreign to the minds of the ancients, right? And there's further evidence that the conflicts that are documented in the New Testament between Christian and Jews are not properly viewed as racial issues. I mean, Jesus and his earliest followers were all Jewish, and so were their persecutors. So these weren't disputes that were, you know, fueled by anti-Semitism, but more, as we're going to see as we unpack this, by theological differences. So the New Testament writings actually give us a, a surprisingly clear view of the nature of these Jewish-Christian conflicts that were happening, and not only conflicts, but just in general, what were the relations between the two groups? So, I mean, from, from the book of Acts, we know that the early Christian preaching began in the Jewish synagogues of the Diaspora. And they amassed a following from both Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus, the apostles, and the early Christian church, they relied on the Hebrew scriptures. That was their Bible, the Jewish Bible, what, they, what the Jews would call the Tanakh, what the Christians would call the Old Testament. So Judaism really provided the religious context for the early Christian church. So what we're going to do in this study, we're going to concentrate on the teachings of two Jewish men. First of all, the Apostle Paul, and then Jesus himself. We'll look at Paul in today's episode, and we're going to look at uh, uh, Jesus in the next episode here. But by doing that, by concentrating on these two Jewish men, we can develop a, a pretty well-rounded perspective on the New Testament's teachings about how Christians are to regard Judaism and the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul is uniquely qualified to give us a biblical perspective on this issue. So when we first meet him in Scripture, you know, he's, a, he's this proudly Jewish man. He considers himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, and he was on this mission to wipe out this new Jewish sect that would not stop teaching and preaching about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And he wrote this, I'm going to read from Galatians, about his time when he was persecuting the Christians as a Jew. He wrote this. This is from Galatians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And of course, Luke in the book of Acts reports that Paul ravaged the church and 
Acts 8.3 says, And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in the next chapter, in Acts 9, uh, verses 1 and 2, we read that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here we have Paul as a Jew who was so convinced that he should oppose these new Nazarenes, as they were referring to that sect, that he, he, he imprisoned many of them, he, and he even cast his vote to put some to death. Uh, in Acts 26, he confesses that he, quote, punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted, persecuted them even to foreign cities. And then, as we all know, Paul later on the road to Damascus met the risen Jesus. This is covered in, in uh, Acts 9, 1 through 19. And following this supernatural experience, Paul now becomes this zealous, fervent follower of Christ, right? He, he was converted to the way, which is that same Jewish sect that he'd been persecuting. Now, scholars typically date Paul's conversion to around the year 34 through 37, depending on, again, how you date things. But and that means that his persecution, when he was a Jew persecuting the early Christians, it may have even begun during Jesus' earthly ministry. And Paul's conversion is dated to as little as a year after the resurrection. It, it may have even occurred within months of what we read about in Acts 7, where he attended and, and approved of the execution of really our first martyr, Stephen. Uh, Paul was there holding everyone's coats. So as I was studying this era, I not only read from the Christian perspective, but I, I read some Jewish scholarship on the issue. And uh, there's a scholar named Alan Segal. I'll, I'll be quoting from him widely. He's a brilliant guy. But he says this about Paul's conversion, quote, However much I may disagree with Paul, my reading accedes to the authenticity of Paul's conversion experience. Paul considered himself part of a new Jewish sect and hoped to convince both fellow Christians and Jews of his vision of redemption. So Paul had transformed from a Jew who was fervently persecuting Christians to a Christian being persecuted by Jews. And then God used him to write nearly a third of the New Testament. So who could give us a better perspective on this issue than the Apostle Paul? And we also don't want to miss this critical fact, too. This is an important part of our conversation, is that Paul's conversion to Christianity didn't require him to leave his Jewishness behind. He actually continued to laud and celebrate his, his Jewish heritage even after his conversion. In Philippians 3, Paul, as a Christian, writes this to his fellow Jews, quote, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then during his arrest at the temple in Jerusalem, Paul, you know, turns to speak to this unruly crowd, and he begins kind of with his Jewish bona fides. Here we're reading this in Acts 22, verse 3. He says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. And what's interesting here is that he references Gamaliel, which we have extra biblical evidence for, in, certainly in the Jewish writings. So he was a chief elder in the Sanhedrin, and he was the grandson of the famous Jewish sage Hillel. 
Now, according to the Jewish Mishnah, Gamaliel was one of the greatest teachers in all of Jerusalem. So he was very much of an influential figure in the Jewish community, and that's who Paul learned from. In the book of Romans, um, specifically chapters 9 through 11, and of course the book of Romans is an amazing theological treatise, but in the chapters of 9 through 11, Paul provides really one of the New Testament's most uh, complete teachings regarding the relationship between Jews and Christians. These three chapters specifically address the, the unique role of the Jews in God's redemptive story and the, and the relation between Jews and Gentiles. And so we're going to use this text as our sort of our foundation as we begin to um, sketch out a biblical perspective on how Christians ought to regard Jews and Judaism. So the opening verses of these three chapters, they really give us a glimpse of Paul's heart on this issue. As a Christian, Paul's writing this. He says in chapter 9, verse 2, he writes of the great sorrow and anguish that he feels for his fellow Jews. And then in, in chapter 10, the first verse, he, he talks about his desire and prayer for their salvation. And then in, in chapter 11, first verse, he's talking about his confidence that God has not rejected the Jews. In fact, Paul expresses such a deep love for his fellow Jews that he, he says he would be willing to give up his own salvation if they could all be saved. Romans 9.3 says this, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So for Paul, his, his anguish over their unbelief is even more heartbreaking for him because of what he sees as Israel's unique perspective. And Paul actually gives us eight specific blessings that God gave to Israel. Here in Romans uh, 9, we're going to start at verse 4, it says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul here is deliberately establishing his affection for the Jewish people, for his fellow Jews. He's a Jew himself. And then he kind of proceeds to lay out this sophisticated theological presentation. Um, and he begins by thinking about and talking about how is it possible that Israel, favored with all these privileges we just read about, and, you know, having been educated and they've spent centuries watching for the promised Messiah, how is it that they didn't recognize him when he came? He asks, did God's promise to Israel fail? And then he answers his own question, by no means. Paul says that Israel didn't miss the Messiah due to a, a failure of God's word, um, but rather, as he's going to demonstrate for us uh, as we get into chapter 11, he, they missed the Messiah because of a hardening of their hearts. Israel had neglected God's blessing through her unbelief. And in verse 9, chapter 6, Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, here he's kind of picking up on this distinction that he had introduced earlier uh, in chapter 2. So in Romans 2, uh, 28, 29, Paul taught that there have always been really two Israels, those physically descended from Jacob, and then those who were his spiritual offspring. And Paul says God gave his promise to the latter. So in chapter 9, verse 7, Paul, he's quoting here from Genesis 21, he says, "...through Isaac shall your offspring be named." And then in verse 8, he says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So as an illustration, Paul points to God's choosing of Abraham's younger son, Isaac, rather than his firstborn son, Ishmael, as the beneficiary of his promise. 
So Paul's really kind of drawing out this idea that God, in his sovereignty, overruled this sort of traditional cultural norm of the father's inheritance, you know, flowing to the firstborn son. So Isaac was the son of the promise, if you remember, from Genesis. And likewise, Paul points out that God chose Jacob over Esau. And why did he do that? Well, in verse 11 here, Paul says, So God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So Paul's pointing to God's sovereign choosing of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith and and showing us that God's promises didn't fail. This was the way that God intended it from the beginning. And he points out that the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, foretold of God's plans for Jews and Gentiles. Here in uh, chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, "...even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." And this is really cool because the apostle is building this case so firmly rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. So here in Romans 9 uh, verses 25 and 26, he's quoting two passages from the prophet Hosea to demonstrate, you know, God's pre-existent plan to include the Gentiles in his family. So it's not like it's some new revelation. And then in verses 27 through 29, Paul is citing uh, two different texts from Isaiah. And those texts tell us that God had planned to reduce the number of Jews in his family to a remnant. Let me read you a brief quote here from uh, John Stott's book, The Message of Romans. It's his commentary on the book of Romans. Highly recommend this book if you don't have it. So here's what John Stott wrote about this passage, quote, By bringing the Hosea and Isaiah texts together, Paul provides Old Testament warrant for his vision. On the one hand, God has called us, he writes, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So there's a fundamental Jewish-Christian solidarity in God's new society. On the other hand, Paul is conscious of the serious imbalance between the size of the Gentile participation and the size of the Jewish participation in the redeemed community. As Hosea prophesied, multitudes of Gentiles, formerly disenfranchised, have now been welcomed as the people of God. As Isaiah promised, however, the Jewish membership was only a remnant of the nation, so small, in fact, as to constitute not the inclusion of Israel, but its exclusion, not its acceptance, but its rejection. And he puts rejection in quotes. And Jesus actually spoke to these affairs. If we flip over to Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And then Paul kind of summarizes this really awkward situation, especially from a Jewish perspective, that we're in the middle of. So in verses 30 and 31, Paul's teaching that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and the Jews who pursued it never reached it. And it's interesting that even today, Jews who claim faith in Jesus, they make up a minority of both Israel as a nation and a minority of Christendom. So in verse 32, and again, we're in Romans chapter 9, 932, Paul uh, attributes Israel's failure to her carelessness. And he says this, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And Paul says that Israel has stumbled over the stumbling stone. And this is cool because what he's doing here, he's applying the words of Isaiah to reveal Jesus as what in in Isaiah 8 we read was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Paul expresses this same idea um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 22, he writes, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And Peter picks up on this idea too. He's quoting the same passage from Isaiah and and he adds 
about unbelieving Israel, he adds, uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So, in fact, Israel's rejection of her Messiah was foretold in the Hebrew Bible. Again, Paul's making this point that, hey, this shouldn't be any surprise. We were told this was coming. So, Jesus himself even picks up on this same idea. So, if we jump over to Matthew 21, we see that he's applying the words of Psalm 118 to himself. Here's Matthew 21, 42. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, the promised Messiah that the Jewish religious leaders have rejected has become the the foundation of God's new covenant. And Peter even develops this idea in his address to the Jewish council in Jerusalem. You know, they, they had demanded to know by whose power Peter and John had healed the lame man at the temple gate. And then in Acts, here's Acts 4, starting at verse 8, we read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then, of course, in 1 Peter 2.4, He refers to Jesus as, quote, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then he applies the same Psalm 118 to Jesus that Jesus had applied to himself. And it doesn't even stop there. This theme appears again in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19, we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So overall, the teaching in the New Testament about Jesus being the rejected Messiah is very solid. And then we move over to Romans 10, where we see that, you know, although Israel's prophesied denial of Christ had had happened, Paul still doesn't doubt Israel's earnestness, right? He, He acknowledges their zeal for God, which of course he knows from his own personal experience. And yet he says that their devotion is, here in Romans 10 too, not according to knowledge. So here in the beginning of of Romans 10, Paul is laying out this case that, you know, Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness, and instead she as a nation sought to establish her own righteousness through the works of the law. And of course, Paul is very strong on this idea that when it comes to salvation, the law and Jesus are two opposite choices, right? Righteousness isn't achieved through the law, but through faith. And it's available to everyone, not just Israel. So we see this, you know, in verses 5 through 13 here. And then Paul makes what would have been really an astounding declaration to his Jewish readers. Here in in verse 12, Paul teaches that in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And of course, this is a teaching that he reiterates uh, in, in many other places, Romans 3, Galatians 3, 1 Corinthians 12, He teaches that in Christ, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, which would have been an amazing thing for the Jewish people to hear because the law of Moses is all about setting apart Israel as a nation. And here Paul is teaching that in Christ, all those distinctions of race or gender or culture or class or whatever, they've all been rendered irrelevant by the work of Christ. 
So then Paul moves on to examine this idea of why. Why did Israel not believe? You know, did did Israel not hear the message of Jesus, or maybe she didn't understand it? Uh, and then he says, no, that's not it at all. Instead, he says the reason for Israel's unbelief was her stubbornness. And he points out what God had declared about the Gentiles uh, he, here in Romans 10:20, but he's actually quoting from Isaiah 65. He says, God is saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. So here we see God's grace just writ large. You know, he, he allowed himself to be found by a people who not only didn't serve him, but they weren't even looking for him. And then for his beloved Israel, you know, you read this here in verse 21, it kind of sounds like, like a, a father pleading for the return of this recalcitrant child. You know, it's uh, Romans 10, 21, which is quoting from Isaiah 62, says this, God, this is the words of God. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So having established this uh, idea of Israel's disobedience in chapter 10, now we turn to Romans 11 where Paul begins to look at the implications of Israel's disobedience. What, what is that going to mean? So he's teaching that, that a remnant of Israel endures, you know, despite her unbelief. Kind of we looked at that passage from Isaiah earlier. And even more than that, he's saying that there's going to be an Israelite recovery in the future that's going to result in a blessing for all the nations. And so Paul begins chapter 11 here. He's asking and answering really two rhetorical questions. First, he asks in verse 1 here, he says, has God rejected his people? By no means. Paul teaches that the Jewish people have a, a prominence or a priority in terms of the good news, in terms of the gospel of Jesus. Back in the first chapter in Romans 1, he taught that the gospel is, quote, first for the Jew and also for the Greek, or we might say the Gentile. And at the same time, because, you know, God had given Israel this special place, that he's also going to hold her all the more accountable. So that, and Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, that judgment too is going to come to the Jew first and then to the Greek or Gentile. And now here in chapter 11, Paul is teaching that while a, a believing remnant of Israel does endure, most of Israel has been hardened. And then the second question that Paul asks is this, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he says. And he, and he goes on to explain that through Israel's transgression, Salvation has now come to the Gentiles, and more than that, God allowed this to happen, he says here in Romans 11, verse 11, to make Israel jealous. In other words, Paul's saying that, that Israel's envy of the Gentiles is ultimately going to lead to her conversion. In verses 13 and 14, he says this, quote, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And then Paul gives us a note of hope for Israel's future. He says this in uh, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, so let's, let's step back here and take a look at what we've got. So Paul is really laying out this four-part kind of cosmic chain of events that's very Israel-centric. He says, number one, through Israel's trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles, which, number two, will arouse the jealousy of Israel, which, number three, will lead to her restoration, which, in due time, number four, will bring even greater riches to the world. In verse 14, Paul tells us that, that Israel's rejection is ultimately going to mean the reconciliation of the world. And, and this idea of reconciliation, I mean, especially regarding Jews and Gentiles, that's echoed all over the New Testament. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul explains that the Gentiles were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. That's verse 12. But now they have been, verse 13, brought near to God by the blood of Christ, who broke down, verse 14, the dividing wall of hostility. So Christ broke down this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus' work on the cross served to, here Ephesians 2.15 says, to create in himself one new man in place of two, so he might reconcile Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between them. This is why Paul tells the Gentile believers in Ephesians 2.19 that they are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And we find this exact same theme in Galatians 3, starting at verse 26. It says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. And it's this spirit of reconciliation and unity between believing Jews and Gentiles that's behind this this next very popular metaphor that Paul gives us at the end of Romans 11. So to illustrate his message, he starts using this allegory of an olive tree, right? It's a recognized symbol of the nation of Israel in Scripture. And the tree here, in Paul's analogy, represents the people of God. Its roots are the, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, and its trunk and branches are the, you know, the sort of historical continuity of faith in God. And Paul argues in verse 16, uh, Romans eleven sixteen, that if the root is holy, so are the branches. And let me actually pick that up here at uh, Romans 11, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, meaning unbelieving Jews, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches or or the believing Jews. And Paul warns the Gentile believers in Rome, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And then he goes on to tell them, Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, which would be the Jews, neither neither will he spare you, the Gentiles. And then Paul wraps up this analogy by alluding to this this hope and victory that exists for the future of Israel. He says in uh, Romans 11.23, And even the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So let me give you a little historical background on this passage here. So in Paul's day, although, you know, the Jews were tolerated and protected by law, they certainly suffered hatred and even violence at the hands of Gentiles and the Romans, right? So here in Romans 11, Paul is really admonishing the Gentile believers. Remember, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, and he's saying, hey, don't take any part of that. Don't have any part of persecuting the Jewish people, because as I've just painted for you, Paul is saying... Believers in Christ, Jewish or Gentile, we're all part of the same spiritual family tree. And then Paul closes out Romans 11 with this look at sort of the eschatological future, the the mystery of how Israel's salvation is going to come about in the end times. He says in verse 25 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, this hardening that he's talking about might be what Jesus had in mind when he said in Luke 21 that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, this could be referring to the end of the Roman oppression or to the end of the, of the present age, you know, before God's reign is experienced in its fullness. 
Either way, what Paul is saying here is that while Israel remains hardened and continues to reject Christ, the gospel is going to be preached throughout the world, and the Gentiles are going to respond to it. In verse 26, Paul says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So in other words, the Jews are going to ultimately find salvation in Christ. N.T. Wright describes it this way, quote, Paul is envisaging a steady flow of Jews into the church by grace through faith. So Paul's message is, is pretty clear here. There's only one olive tree, and it's comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And, and at the same time, Paul's not shying away from the paradox or the mystery uh, in the current state of affairs that he was experiencing at the time. You know, he tells the Gentiles in verse 28 of chapter 11, as regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, with regard to the Jews being called enemies here, uh, theologian Robert Jamerson gives us a good explanation here. He says this, quote, that is, they are regarded and treated by God as enemies in a state of exclusion through unbelief from the family of God for the benefit of you Gentiles. And then in verses 30 and 31 here of chapter 11, Paul, Paul adds that in the same way that the Gentiles were once disobedient but now receive God's mercy, the disobedient Jews will receive mercy as well in that same way. So let me wrap up here with one last quote from John Stott's commentary on Romans. He says this, On the one hand, the Jews are not only rejecting the gospel, but actively opposing it and doing their best to prevent you Gentiles from hearing it. So then, in relation to the gospel, and for your sake, because God wants you to hear and believe, he is hostile to them. On the other hand, the Jews are the chosen special people of God, the descendants of the noble patriarchs with whom the covenant was made and to whom the promises were given. So then, in relation to election and for the sake of the patriarchs, because God is faithful to his covenant and promises, he loves them and is determined to bring them to salvation. So this is a good place to wrap it up. We've gone on pretty far. We've got pretty deep into scripture. I think we've begun to set a really good sense of the foundation of the New Testament teachings on this issue that we're looking at. In our next episode, we're going to continue on through the New Testament, and we're going to be examining the words and teachings of Jesus and his conflicts with the Jewish people and where he saw his ministry focused. And that's going to add to this sort of baseline that we're putting together. So thanks for tuning in. Shalom. Shalom.